Hello, hello. Welcome to The Analyst and the Fool, liminality, comparison, and the quest for reality with a little r. I'm Brandon Wilson, and I am here today with Christian Van Dyke. He is a graduate student at C at Claremont Graduate University, uh, where he's a PhD student in the philosophy and religious thought track. Uh, Christian, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit? Hello, yeah, great to be with you here tonight. Uh, excited to to get through some comparison stuff, but yeah, so I'm here at CGU. Um, like you said, philosophy and religious thought is my jam. Um, and it, my interest broadly, and this will come out when we get it more into what we're here for is um, kind of the ethics behind liminality and comparison. Um, what implications come kind of on the back end of our comparisons? What do they lead to? Um, and that work, um, right? Um, and it's that, it's that kind of stuff that I hope to do um, in the broader field of philosophy and religious thought, um, specifically as it pertains to uh, kind of the intersection of, 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 of faith and public life. Um, so what kinds of implications do our truth claims have um, in the public sphere? And I think a lot of that has to do with the way we interpret the world around us, how, how we compare our own projects to um, competing and conflicting or projects that can be seen as competing and conflicting with ours. Uh, yeah. And so that's just a little bit about me and as it pertains to, to what we're going to be up to tonight. That's interesting. So, I mean, I guess a couple of questions kind of going along with that. So what brought you to that particular approach in the way in which you're, you know, or I guess the ways that you're trying to think about uh, how truth claims interact with, or especially competing truth claims interact with one another. Um, and even why, why Claremont, like, why is it that you feel that Claremont is the best school to kind of, to, to bring those issues that you want to bring to light? Um, tell us a bit about your story as to how you came to this approach. And why and why CGU? Yeah, so that's a good question. So, so CGU has played has, has kind of been kind of in the back of my mind um, for graduate studies for a long time. Uh, my mentor, our mentor, one of our mentors actually, my, mine more than yours, right? Um, was 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 Brian Birch, who teaches at Utah Valley University. He's the um, uh, he's the director of the, uh, the Center for the Study of Ethics there and, and runs the Mormon Studies program. Um, Brian uh, graduated from here uh, in the 90s. Um, and there was a very, in taking classes from him, meeting, meeting him, taking classes from him, interacting and working with him, uh, it just kind of shaped how I it kind of began to interpret the world around me. Um, one of those texts is one that, that I'll get to. Um, 
but so but going through so graduate graduate from UVU uh go get my master's degree at Wesley Theological Seminary in Washington DC where I did public theology um got to got close to rubbing shoulders with a lot of influential and important people but then coronavirus shut down the world um but why there so so um there've been a lot of things kind of working in the background um that I didn't know about until I like I turned my application in but um so I guess one of the reasons why there is the I had applied to grad programs the year before I got accepted to um to Wesley and uh I was pointed uh meticulous and was uh really just rejected across the board right and so the 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 next year I was like pointed and meticulous as well but then came across Wesley because I got the I got the application fee waived because I was an alumnus alumnus right in air quotes um of a, a nonprofit in based in Chicago called Interfaith Youth Corps um and Wesley was one of their affiliate schools and I said yeah sure why not uh just so it was it, 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 it was kind of random but uh come to find out um Greg Prince um who is big in Mormon circles right was on the board of directors there and had been pushing to kind of cast a wider net back west to try and get Mormon students for his own kind of theological project um, which was get people who want to teach seminary and institute, get them theological training so that we can teach our youth. Um, Greg would just say better, uh, but right, better. It's pertinent. It's re the reality here with is with a little r, right? And so Greg's right. So better for Greg in his in his worldview, which I I tend to agree with, but um, that kind of ends up being beside the point. And so Wesley uh says to me we'll do whatever it takes to get you here um and i i just kind of said okay that sounds nice um you're in dc right dc is where faith and society as it is shaped ultimately clash and collide in public policy making and, and legislation and so i thought that'd be a cool thing to do um so there wasn't really I, I i wish i could say that it was because i was i loved the research and, and work and writing of rick l gendy who wound up being my my thesis advisor and that's true i do love the writing and research and work of rick l gendy but i didn't know that until i got there right um and then it was a lot of the work that i did at wesley uh so my thesis is about uh donald davidson's uh notion of radical interpretation um and getting back into donald davidson uh kind of pulled me to the Wittgensteinian roots that i had learned with brian at uvu which kind of led me to think about cgu even though Wittgenstein hasn't been huge here since dc phillips left but the the finger his fingerprints are still here right uh, so I was thinking about CGU, uh, just kind of in passing, 
and then at the last minute decided to apply because uh, I just found out that they'd hired this guy from Princeton who uh, was one of Jeffrey Stout's protégés. And so he, he ended up being kind of one of the pragmatists that um, I align with in a lot of ways, right? Um, with the kind of Wittgensteinian bent. But that's why I'm in good company with Donald Davidson because he 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 tries to toe that line too, um, and so wound up here working with Kevin. Uh, Mormon studies was a big part of that, right? One of the other places that I had applied to was the University of Virginia. Um, they have a robust Mormon studies program as well, and so I I did want Mormon studies to kind of be a thing that I could like tinker with if I wanted to. Um, and now I get to, right? So CGU wound up working out and being better, the better choice than Virginia. Um, and so that's, that's kind of a meandery way of, and, and kind of vague and aloof way of, of how I got here, right? So would you say that Mormon studies is more of a central focus in what you're doing? Um, more supplementary, more maybe in a backdrop. I mean, like where, where does Mormonism play into the work that, that you're ultimately shooting towards? I mean, yeah. even as a career path, I mean, like, right. it's like, were you working with Prince more along the lines of maybe being a seminary Institute professor or teacher sure. or, yeah. you know, it's like, what, what kind of routes are you looking yeah. at? Yeah. So, so my dad teaches for seminaries and institutes. So I, I grew up in that world. Um, that's not the world that I want to live in every, every, every now and then I have kind of a thought in the back of my head when I think about, uh, the shortcomings in seminaries and institutes, the same kind of shortcomings in seminaries and institutes that Greg sees where it's just kind of like, right. I think it was elder Holland called it, uh, theological Twinkies, right. Is that elder Holland? Um, I think it is. Think it's just so actually. Kind of, I've actually never heard that term before. Okay, so I so, don't know. <laughs> so I think it was I'm I'm gonna go with it. Um so, so Elder Holland referred to, to it as as a kind of theological twinkie. Not seminaries and institutes in general, but sometimes the way we approach gospel learning is as theological twinkies. There's no real meat on those bones. So every now and then I have I've I've had this thought that is like, well, if you think that you can do it better, why don't you go do it? Um but that that that's a that's that's kind of a fleeting thought because I don't I don't want to have my hands tied in the same kind of ways that that my dad's hands um, have been tied um, in, in his work and his research um, and in his worldview um, and so no I, I wasn't working with Greg in that case um, and unfortunately like the 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 relationship with Greg got coronavirus cut that short, right? Um, there were a lot of, there were a lot of ties that were kind of severed because of the lockdowns and stuff like that. So there's a lot of might of, there, there are a lot of what ifs there. Um, but as far as like how I see my work in Mormon studies, um, the, the advice that I've always gotten has been learned to learn how to do the academic work. Um, so go learn the philosophy, go learn the ethics, 
um, get a job and then use that expertise if you still want to, if you still want to, to then turn to Mormonism. Um, and that's something I've, I've taken to heart. Um, but I mean, so I've got a paper, I've got a paper uh, proposal into Sunstone now. Um, I think I'm going to, there's a, there's a couple conferences that might be in the works um, that I'll, that I go present at as well. So it's something that, that I do. So I wouldn't say that it's, I wouldn't say that it's background. Um, but I don't know if I'd say it was, I don't know if I would say it was peripheral either. It might be, I think maybe the best term for my approach to Mormon studies in my life now um, might be compartmental. Uh, I feel, I feel like in ways I've kind of compartmentalized it. It's a box that I jump in and out of. Right. Um, so I don't foresee Mormonism and Mormon studies making it into my dissertation. Um, for, 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 for advice that I've gotten about just how my kind of philosophical work, um, what, what job and what hiring committees are looking for. It might not be Mormon studies. Uh, so good. So to go out on the job market with other kinds of strengths that Mormon studies have certainly, uh, added to, um, and then turn back to it if it's still something uh, that's nagging at me. And there's something that tells me that it will, right? Um, but for right now, the, the work that I do with Mormon studies is kind of like, it's kind of like pointed, um, deliberate. Uh, so I think it's a box, I, I like that. It's a, it's a box that I jump in and out of right now. Um, yeah. So it's an interesting way of putting it. And actually, I think that's a very Wittgensteinian way of thinking right. about it yeah, too. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, really, I think that's just that just reflects uh, a lot of the way a lot of the way Wittgenstein just kind of uh, you know has dug itself into the way in which you you think about just ideas, the world, and just everything in general. Right. So <laughs> But I guess with your dissertation proposals and even, I guess, what you're looking at doing, um, what, what are you looking at doing then? If, if Mormonism is more maybe a box that you kind of hop in and out of, then what, what, what's the box, I guess, that you're wanting to, I guess, proverbially wrap yourself up in and ship yourself off in. Yeah. So unsurprisingly, it's going to probably wind up doing something with discourse and, and the use of language. Um, as I see the project right now, um, right, right now I'm kind of doing my best to just let coursework wash over me uh, to see what might come out of it right i don't i don't want to read i'm doing my best to approach my work and my studies right now in such a way that that makes it hard for me to read 
my own kind of stuff into everything that I'm exposed to, right? Um, some work, some some stuff that's easier to do, some some stuff that's harder to do. Um, but as I see the project right now, um, I see it something like wrestling with the classic Wittgensteinian notion that uh, language dictates reality right that that comes from the tractatus and it gets worked out in later Wittgenstein a little bit but I mean not much right so so it's not it's so wrestling with with that but then also wanting to carve out space for experience as something that can also be formative um so chasing chasing that chicken and chasing that egg uh, and then, and then working through those implications in public discourse now, um, because I think a lot of, so I think the last 10, 15 years, uh, has done some interesting, our, our identities have been flattened, I think, in interesting ways in the last 10 or 15 years. And I can't help but think that a lot of that has to do with the linguistic turn um, that's kind of crystallized in Wittgenstein. Um, and I think that that gets sticky as we interact with people who are different from us. And even as we interact with people who are the same as us. So I see the project wanting to make room for experience inhabiting a world uh, that's still very much dictated by the linguistic turn. Um, my bugaboo right now is John Rawls. Uh, so Rawls's notion of public discourse, right? that all of these formative things are to be placed in the background and not to be brought to the public square. Um, it, I, I find that, I find that problematic in that, I mean, you are, you are your background information, right? So how do you relegate, how do you relegate, how do you in good faith or how do you realistically relegate um, your education, your religion, your family life? How do you relegate that to a perceived background when you enter the proper public sphere, whatever that may be, um, and talk as kind of like this lone monad, monad thing that doesn't have any attachments? Um, I just feel like the, ex the experiences we have, while they are couched in a, in a specific language might be able to help us outrun how we take what is said at its face. Um, so that's, a, that's what I see the project being right now. So a question with that, that just kind of comes to mind because I mean, I feel like 
the theories of Rawls is something that's, and maybe this is just from my own experience, um, but it's a very predominant notion. And maybe even in my own understanding of Wittgenstein, even that's something that Wittgenstein himself made perhaps early Wittgenstein, maybe not later Wittgenstein, um, maybe would have agreed with. And you can push back on that. In fact, I'd like, <laughs> obviously you're more of the Wittgensteinian than I am. But as I understand Wittgenstein, that seems like that there, you know, the issues of language can, you know, you know, it's like when, for example, you and I being Latter-day Saints, when we talk about feeling the spirit, it's going to be very different from, say, how an evangelical Christian or, well, actually, and let me be a little bit more specific there, an evangelical Christian in uh, Houston, Texas, versus a Roman Catholic in, uh, in Poland. You know, we're both talking about all three of us are discussing feeling the spirit, and we all mean very different things, right? And it ends up kind of talking over one another. So in one, so in one instance, I can see where Rawls and perhaps even Wittgenstein, you know, where, where, where that irreconciliability of semantics of language can maybe just not work out. But on the other, and so I guess the question that I would propose with that, and especially with you bringing up uh, Davidson with him, with himself being, having very strong uh, Wittgensteinian lenses and you using Davidson both in your, in your thesis and wanting to continually incorporate him in your work is how would Davidson and even your own incorporation of Davidson, um, you know, I guess using this, this example of the Mormon, the evangelical Christian in, in Houston, Texas, and the Polish Roman Catholic talking about feeling the spirit, how would Davidson disentangle or reconcile or, you know, how would he approach this type of situation to the point where it's not as strong as say Rawls, who says there is no reconciliation whatsoever. They're all talking about different things. There can't be any, there's a wall. There's a, there's a proverbial wall between all three. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So what Rawls is going to say is, is there have to, we have to come up with kind of like this weird neutral language that, that all the, the three people would be able to speak. My issue with that is that it kind of, especially as it, it, for, for a lot of Rawls, this has to do with like legislation, like town halls and everything like that. So, I mean, but then the, the trickle down effect that that has. Yeah. Um, I see is problematic, right? The, 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 the kind of hyper individualistic turn of discourse, I think is, 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 a product of this kind of idea that there, there might be like this kind of neutral arbitration language that we can use. The, the problem I have with that notion is that neutral language winds up being perhaps code for the language that those who wield power use. And then everybody else has to adapt and learn how to speak that language, right? And so, so there, so there's, so there's that. Um, it's very Foucauldian but, as well. 
it, no, really though it is right. Yeah. No. Yeah. And so it kind of, that, that kind of, that, that then neutral kind of linguistic um, tradition, it kind of disciplines the rest of us, right. Mm -hmm. To go more Foucault um, into speaking its own uh, and, and to, to the point where, where we feel like that kind of neutral language truly is something that is neutral um, and not something that's been imposed by another group of people. But so, but with Davidson, so um, the, the essay that captured and still captures my attention when it comes to this um, is called um, on the very idea of a conceptual scheme. And in it, he's going to talk about how we typically view the way our world is organized. So he opens the essay by saying, conceptual schemes, we are told of ways of organizing experience. They are systems of categories that give form to the data of sensation. They are points of view from which individuals, cultures, or periods survey the passing scene. There may be no translating from one scheme to another, in which case the beliefs, desires, hopes, and bits of knowledge that characterize one person have no true counterparts for the subscriber to another scheme. And then he's going to spend the rest of that of, of the essay kind of dismantling that notion that conceptual schemes are hard and fast and that the, the boundaries between competing and conflicting truth claims are set in stone, right? Something, something that are, that are not breachable. And he's going to say they are breachable in a certain way. Um, and, but the breachability, the ability to breach them calls for something. So in the essay, he's going to talk about, he's going to say two things. He's going to say one, there's no such thing as two conceptual schemes that completely agree with one another. And then two, he's going to say, we can't make sense of two conceptual schemes that absolutely and categorically disagree with one another. And so what he's going to focus on are various levels of what he calls partial translation failures. But partial translation failures also communicates that there are also partial translation successes too, right? Um, and so what Davidson calls for to kind of highlight possible areas of agreement is to, to begin a discursive encounter, to begin discourse with this idea that I agree with my interlocutor probably in a lot more ways than I disagree with them, especially if the two people inhabit the same, right, conceptual scheme. If, they're, if they live in the same culture, if they speak the same language, if they're members of the same religion or whatever, if you start, um, if you start discourse with that in mind, um, then you're gonna be able to, um, kind of sharpen and highlight dis areas of disagreement, right? So it makes, it makes critical disagreement possible. 
critical, constructive. That's the word I was, it makes, it makes constructive disagreement possible, right? If you enter discourse um, with the idea that there's going to be a, a great amount of shared, shared agreement, um, then you highlight areas that you disagree and you're able to open up the possibility of a kind of constructive disagreement that might lead to something. Um, he's going to call that, he's going to call that charity. Um, and he's going to call that, he's going to say that charity is kind of, is a condition of discourse because we can't say categorically that I completely disagree with this person. Um, it takes charity. So for our example, with the three folk talking about the Holy Spirit, you have to enter that, even though you, you speak different religious languages, there's kind of this other shared overarching, like Christian notion, even if the Godheads you're talking about, even if the third person of the Godhead that you're talking about are different, right? If, if, if you go into that with a lens of interpretational charity, then you're able to make maximum sense of the words and thoughts of others. Um, because you're, you're, you're interpreting in such a way that optimizes agreement, um, right? And optimizing agreement highlights disagreement and highlights areas where you can constructively work through that disagreement instead of just talking past one another. What I really liked about that, that particular notion is that um, it kind of harkens back to the issues that you were indicating earlier, um, or at least issues that <clears throat> you were seeing with say like the seminary and institutes program where there were too many uh, theological Twinkies, for example. And if people who are so, um, you know, like, so you have the, the, you have the, the Mormon, you have the evangelical Christian and you have the Catholic, what, what makes them irreconcilable a lot of the times, at least how you're framing this is that what makes it, what makes it, what makes all three of them irreconcilable is if they, you know, firstly, don't completely understand what they mean, like what they personally mean by feeling the spirit. So when they say, I'm feeling the spirit, like obviously they're experiencing something that they're translating as it, but in terms of like actually being able to explicate it, to actually discuss it, bring it to a table of discussion. If they can't do that, you know, it, you know, obviously <laughs> that proverbial wall is going to be built. Um, not because, you know, there's any sort of, har you know, harboring any sort of major disagreements. It's just the, 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 the schema is not, is not there. It reminds me of, uh, I guess, a, a funny way of, of putting that up is, you know, in Hank Hill, in, in the first season of King of the Hill, Hank Hill is sitting there with, uh, so Khan, Khan Supanusaphone just moves in and they're sitting there and you know, he asks Khan, he says, so are you Chinese or Japanese? And he's like, well, I, I come from Laos, but I've lived in Anaheim for the past 30 years. <laughs> and, you know, so I got a job out here. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and he's like, so are you Chinese or Japanese? You know, he has, it, 
you know, it's like, obviously it's, it's, it's unintentionally racist because it's not, you know, he's trying to understand who Khan is, where Khan comes from, but the only Asian cultures that he knows and understands obviously very superficially are, are China and Japan, you know, you know, and obviously, you know, he, Khan, the other funny line is Khan's like, I come from Laos, I'm Laotian. And then Bill's like, what ocean? <laughs> <Right. laughs> you know, so, yeah. so obviously, like, they have no idea where Laos is. They have no idea what any of that stuff is. And so kind of coming back to this conversation here, it, yeah, so that's why I really like it. It's like, it requires individuals, or at least if you're trying to do proper comparative work, it requires very deep introspection to be able to fully explicate what's going on. So that way differences and similarities can then be hashed out to the best capabilities possible, um, both for the scholar and, and, but more especially, obviously in this case for the practitioner, I mean, obviously with Mormonism and their um, uh, evangelical work through missionary work, I mean, that's obviously going to be key. And especially if they're trying to, you know, if they're trying to teach missionaries how to talk to um, people of other faiths, especially those that are not Christian. I mean, you have like we have missionaries in India, for example, and in Japan. Um, it almost I think that this type of notion, obviously, for even evangelizing is a little different because that's that, that that's conversion. Right. right. Yeah. But nevertheless, um, I think it's still rather key to say hey even if you're just trying to get to know someone because obviously that's what we're talking about here is me understanding somebody who's not me right um it requires that level of of depth understanding empathy and and that's why i like that word that davidson uses charity yeah yeah and so the the texts that i've kind of drawn from for this for this ep- for this for this episode just kind of like they all in one way or another call for a kind of um epistemological humility in that there's a lot more out in the world that that is similar to you um that sometimes that gets swept under the rug or 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 um kind of like put in the closet um for very deliberate ways in and if we if we uncover if we if we lift the rug up uh open the door right uh and go looking for things. Um, I think there are ways that we can hold on to what's unique to us while also holding up, respecting, cherishing what others do in similar kinds of ways in their own life and in their own activities in the world that they may or may not attribute to a god or a religion right well and that leads um rather well i think into well (laughs) i guess you could say superiority complexes (laughs) with with you know the way in which people usually think and 
you know, one of the texts that that we wanted to discuss was about Peter Lynch. Yep. Right. Right. And this was a text that, you know, I had read when I was at UVU when I took I also took some classes under Brian Birch and and you did, too. Um, maybe discuss a little bit about how Peter Winch plays into this type of, as you put it, epistemological. Let's see. Had, I want to make sure I said it, epistemological uh, humility. Yep. Yep. That's it. Because I, it's it, I feel like Peter Winch is paramount in this type of um in that in especially in that in that light especially what he's discussing in this article here yeah and so peter winch's article um it's called understanding a primitive religion um and he he takes up and kind of critiques the seminal study of the azandi tribe in africa by e evans pritchard where pritchard goes and lives with the zandi for a couple years in africa lives the their their life participates in their what they call what uh, they call the the Bengay oracle uh how they the how they kind of orient their ritual ritualistic life um and winch is is gonna say that evan pritchard's does does a good job in kind of kicking the can down the road where he 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 says that the azandi way of life is coherent and logical but, but winch is going to say where where evans pritchard slips up is that is that uh, evans pritchard is going to ultimately say that because the azandi tribes outlook uh and way of life doesn't correspond with reality um, in for Evans Pritchard, read in Western scientific kind of data imperialism, right? That, that the Zandi tribe is ultimately wrong. And, and Peter Winch is going to step in and say, wait, 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 now. Um, we can't do that. Um, because for Winch, there's the ultimately what, what the article is going to say is that there's no way that you can neutrally talk about what reality is, right? Hence, again, reality with a little r. Um, and so kind of the meat, what stuck with me from this article uh, in the years since I've been, I, I read it for the first time um, as an undergraduate, uh, it comes just a few pages into it. Winch says, God's reality is certainly independent of what any man may care to think, but what that reality amounts to can only be seen from the religious tradition in which the concept of God is used. Um, and this use is very unlike the use of scientific concepts, say of theoretical entities. Um, the point is that it is within the religious use of language that the conception of God's reality has its place. Though I repeat, this does not mean that it is at the mercy of what anyone cares to say. If this were so, God would have no reality. Um, reality is not what gives language sense. What is real and what is unreal shows itself in the sense that language has, right? And so the Azandi way of life ultimately does correspond with a Zandi reality, right? 
And for somebody who wants to impose the scientific method on the Azandi in Africa, uh, of course, it's not going to work. Scientific language will not be able to properly take stock of what's act what might actually be happening in the Bengay Oracle, just like an Azandi would not be able to take stock of what might happen during Catholic mass, right? Um, a, a Zandi language won't account for that. What does account for it, and the only thing that can account for that um, is the way adherents use their language. Um, and so for Winch, unlike for Evans Pritchard, the Zandi way of life does correspond with reality. Um, and so the important thing about the title of this show, right, having a little r, is that it doesn't make sense to talk about a reality with a big R. Um, and if there is one for Winch, you couldn't talk about it because even if you were to experience reality with a big R, when you came back down and talked to those with other notions of what reality is, one, your own reality would sound a lot like other people's reality. Or for Winch, what you do is you just create another approach to talk about what he's going to call ultimate reality. Um, so there's not, there's not neutrality there. It, it doesn't make sense for us to talk about something out there that may or may not be ultimately transcendent. That's not to say that there isn't anything out there that's ultimately transcendent, but it's to say that how we think about it depends on the world in which we inhabit. It's, it's, it's in interactions with people who, who describe reality as different, whose reality is different than yours. Epistemological humility kind of becomes key if there's going to be anything fruitful there, um, because if you if you can recognize that that there's no neutral place for us to hash this out, my hope is that in our public discourse, um, ultimate concern for a transcendental reality kind of moves isn't relegated to the background, but kind of moves to the background because we can't sensibly talk about it with one another across our approaches to our own transcendental realities. It's like the, uh, you know, it's like that example that <clears throat> was rather popular in the early 1900s through Albert Einstein and even others of, uh, of a flatlander trying to talk about what up and down feels like. Right. Yeah. To someone who has not experienced that. So it, you know, it's limitations of experience first and foremost. So it's like, how well does language actually articulate what it is that you are experiencing? So like, you know, like, like the Azande are not going to be able to articulate the Catholic mass very well through their language because they don't have words 
to really articulate that very well because they've never, it's not something that's been part of their experience. Just like a Catholic, you know, going into the Azande tribe would have very, uh, would have similar issues. Um, you know, it, it reminds me even of, uh, like I recently um, went on a trip to the Grand Canyon. And as I was, um, I actually purchased some, um, Navajo sand paintings. They're actually out in my little living room out here. And, you know, I, I, I had learned, I was learning all about these sand paintings, not because I, I mean, they're beautiful first and foremost, but, uh, but even learning more about the practice behind them, why they did them, how they work, um, the precision even that goes into them as well. I mean, it, it was amazing reading about them. And my mother had made the comment of, you know, and my mother devout, Latter-day Saint, um, you know, kind of highlighting this issue of like, well, that doesn't seem very scientific. That was her comment when I was, you know, telling her why I wanted to buy one of these um, and telling her what they meant. She's like, those are pretty, but that doesn't seem very scientific or how, she, and then she, you know, you know, and as I was articulating like, well, yeah, but like, yeah, like obviously what an Navajo sand painter is doing is not the same as, you know, what my, what my wife's gynecologist was doing when she was getting birth, <laughs> you know, or it's like, it's not going to be the same thing or, you know, going, it's, it's like, it's not the same type of practice at all. It's like, it's not surgery. It's, it's different. It's, it's a different perception of reality. It's a different experience of reality. And she just sat there and just said, well, I still wouldn't trust them with my health. <laughs> you know, that was the end of the conversation. I mean, it wasn't really the end of the conversation. We ended up having a very long and fruitful conversation about this. Actually, this, this article by Winch even came up in the discussion because I, you know, I felt that it was very um, poignant here. But, but yeah, it, 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 it highlights a lot of frustrations that I personally have and obviously that you even have with um, what is usually called scientism. You know, it's like, it's like I, you know, I have no issues with science, the scientific method or its usage, but it's, you know, these people that just think that science and the scientific method is the only methodology for discerning any sort of truth. Uh, it's the, it, it, you know, it's the reality, it's the truth with capital R's and capital T's. And, you know, it, you just you just have to think back on that line from Shakespeare, which I'm probably going to butcher here. But, you know, there's there, there's more Horatio, there's more to your there, there is more to to reality than than what is articulated in your philosophy. I believe it's from Hamlet. But, you know, that's the line that just always keeps coming in my head every time I, I hear this type of rhetoric. And of course, you know, Pritchard's um, line of, of rhetoric, which is actually surprisingly still rather predominant among anthropologists. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, mean yeah, I was, that was one thing that I learned when I was, you know, doing some graduate studies at Rice, learning, you know, reading some anthropological work on shamanism. And I mean, it was one of those, it was so frustrating reading these accounts of people that are just trying to learn the, the quote unquote tricks of shamanism. And the shamans are all, all just say like, well, of course they're tricks. Of course, we're not actually performing surgery. Of course, we're not, 
doing any of those things. And they're, and so they always come back and say, aha, you know, it, you know, the expose of shamanism, right. Of, you know, in the, in Tibet or, or, you know, wherever it is that they're going, but there's two particular things about these types of practices, be it Navajo sand painting or shamanism or things of that nature that most of these uh, anthropologists don't typically account for. It still works. You know, that that's, <laughs> I, I mean, it's in a very real level, it still works. Yeah, right. Yeah, it does. And, and I mean, on a, at a very real level, at a very real level, right? What they're do, what they're, yeah, and what they're doing is not surgery, right? Not because, not because it's not a, a kind of thing that they see as, as medicinal and healing, but because our notion of surgery doesn't have a place in the, the shaman's use of their own language and of their own utterances, right? Um, and so for, for those purposes, I think Winch is, is a really helpful person to turn to, to say that, look, it's, it's, it's your terms. And Wittgenstein, obviously, too, right here. It's, it's, your, it's your terms, right? Um, the, I, what, yeah, your terms are your terms. And they're, they're learned and used in very specific contexts. And just because someone else's terms and, and the, someone else's contexts um, aren't identical to yours, doesn't mean that they're any less load bearing to the people using them. Right. And so winch is really great um, in that respect. Um, but then Davidson is helpful as well as someone who's writing a handful of years earlier to say that might be the case, but that doesn't mean that um, there can't be fruitful work uh, and, and fruitful communication across those, across those kinds of linguistic differences, um, which I think, so, so the next one I wanted to take a turn to was, um, uh, an article, right. We've, we've talked about Brian a handful of times and actually one of his articles is one, once that was one that I think is, is helpful, um, because Brian's going to take up this kind of comparative thing and, and look in this article that's called, it's called the portion of God's light Mormonism and religious pluralism. Um, and he's going to do some comparative work between uh, Mormon thought and Catholic thought um, specifically what comes out of Vatican II as, and what Carl Rahner is going to talk about as the anonymous Christian um, in a, in a statement given by the first presidency in the seventies, um, I think that, that says um, that the great philosophical and religious figureheads of world history, all were working with a portion of God's light. Right. Mm -hmm. And so here he's going to talk about how we talk, how, how we Mormons talk about particularly the life to come, right? Like who gets into heaven and who doesn't. And how Catholics talk about the anonymous Christian, which ultimately turns into who goes to heaven and who goes to hell, is very similar. And even though our heavens 
our heaven is stratified in interesting ways and in Catholic hell in Catholic, in Catholic heaven is very right. The traditional saved in heaven, damned in hell. The way we Dante would disagree. I know, right? So yeah, Dante. So yeah, 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 no, so yeah Dante's <laughs> going to disagree, but for the sake of the conversation, right? But yeah, um, yeah. The way we talk about these things winds up being incredibly similar, even if we don't like to talk about what we might have in common as Mormons with the Catholic Church, right? The the use of our language. Um, comes is is an interesting kind of thing um and i'm pretty sure that brian's conclusion um is is pretty much he says yeah he says though religious diversity remains among the most challenging areas of theological studies there is a compelling need to engage these questions with both candor and humility in doing so we may well find that god's light comes in healthier portions than we expected, right? Um, and so again, just kind of like this notion, especially when it comes to comparative work, which I think at the end of the day, just whether or not you're doing explicitly doing comparative religions, um, if what you're doing has anything to do with religion, you're going to be comparing and contrasting something. And the way you interpret what that work means is what you're going to get out of it. Right. There's a, there's a, there's a popular saying that goes around that says your own theology and your own theological work says more about you than it does about theology. And I think in a, in a, in a similar way, comparative work does the same thing, right? How your comparative work turns out probably says more about the person doing the comparing than it does about what actually might be being compared. If that makes sense. There's just, you know, reading Birch's article here, it it got me chewing on a lot of things, especially since like, you know, we, we were talking about some people, you know, within the church who maybe have a bit more combative natures. I mean, like, especially Birch's uses of of comparing Catholicism, I find quite poignant just because of the church's historical um, anti-Catholic stances for all intents and, you know, for lack, really just lack of better a term there uh, and probably more specific terms, but um, (laughs) I mean, and obviously that, I mean, and that sentiment is still just so alive today. Um, I mean, when I served a mission and shoot, I mean, it's, it's really weird to think that for me, it's been almost 10 years since I left as a missionary, but so 10 years ago, this wasn't that long ago, the Catholic church being the great and abominable church was something that my mission president was spouting on the regular, like, um, and it's, and was every missionary was preaching it. It was going, it was all over the place. And so, you know, so that's why I thought that Birch's, use of Catholicism as a point of comparison was very uh, poignant. And I guess actually even another funny story was about two years ago when I was a bit more of a regular Reddit user. I am now no longer. <laughs> I'm a recovering Reddit user. You've, you've repented of, of your past. I've re- yeah, I've repented of my past. Uh, I got kicked <laughs> off of a Latter-day Saint forum or a Latter-day Saint subreddit oh, because congrats. I had the 
because I, I had the audacity. Well, and it's for a dumb reason too. It wasn't <laughs> like I was, you know, doing anything <laughs> that controversial, but I had the audacity to talk about transubstantiation in a post. Okay. Yeah. And the mod and the mod kicked me off and wouldn't back up any reason why outside of saying that I was teaching false quote unquote false doctrine, asked him to back up his claim. And he was like, Oh, I don't have time for this. Bye. So yeah. Yeah. So that was, and that, and after that I deleted Reddit and was done with it, but you know, but I guess that's why Birch's article gave me a lot to chew on not just because of putting Mormonism and Catholicism in the conversation with one another, but because within Mormonism itself, there's, it's, there's so much divisiveness going on in the church, especially, especially within recent years. Um, I mean, like you have like the, like the CES letter that came out a few years ago that caused a lot of um, big issues, caused a lot of tidal waves within the church um, which, I mean, and this, this type of stuff is not, is not necessarily anything new. It just highlights a lot of things within Latter-day Saint culture and even cultures abroad of like, you know, how unified are we really kind of questions? I mean, and, and you can even look at same issues within Catholicism after Vatican II. I mean, like, oh my gosh, like people are, I mean, there, there are a lot of Catholic podcasters and YouTubers that I, I follow who still, I mean, they're borderline sede vacantists. Like they, like they, they think that, I mean, and when I say borderline, it's mostly like after John Paul II, there was no Pope kind of thing. Um, or, or, or the Pope that's there is very problematic. I mean, they kind of just ignore Benedict because obviously Benedict abdicated. Right. But, um, but, you know, they just don't like Francis. And so it, it's one of those th- strange phenomenons that go on everywhere. I mean, it's, it's not just something that's just, you know, predominantly Catholic or predominantly Mormon, but it got me thinking about these types of stories that go on. I mean, in, of course, even historically in the church, you have like the League of Nations where Reed Smoot was the, um, you know, just right after World War One, the they proposed the League of Nations for the United States to join. Reed Smoot serving as a senator at this point, and obviously as an apostle. Uh, the predominant voice of the church was to support the League. I mean, there were petitions going around at BYU trying to get Reed Smoot. Actually, there were a couple. <laughs> One of them was to get Reed Smoot off of the board of trustees <laughs> because Reed Smoot opposed the league. <laughs> so there's that. And then there was also to try to get him to support the league, even though he was adamant that he was not going to support the league. You know, so it's like during that time period, there was a lot of vitriol going on inside the church um, that I would personally contend never really quite. Um, was fixed. It was kind of just like, you know, after the vote was cast and the League of Nations was voted down, people just kind of forgot about it and went about their merry way. <laughs> you know, it's, it's so it, was, it wasn't, it, it's like, the, it's like the attitude behind it, the, 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 the bringing the things to the, the bringing the discussions to the table to really hash out, work things out, to bring about any sort of uh, comparative reconciliation, if you want to call it that even though you can disagree 
but you're trying to at least understand one another. I mean, it's like Reed Smoot was being called an apostate by the majority of the church because of his stance. Yeah. Um, even by his fellow apostles. I mean, it's like that, that that's, that's the thing that was even wild about that too. It wasn't just like general membership. It was like, no, no, no leaders in the church. I mean, like B.H. Roberts called him an apostate and actually called for his removal. I mean, so you right. had yeah. all of this type of stuff going on. And so why I, I was thinking about this sort of story in connection with Birch's is not to push back or to disagree with Birch, but more along the lines of how, how do we do what Birch is trying to do when this is the reality? You know, when these are the types of problems that the church, the church, I mean, it's not like the sure. world, just sure. whole, but it's like, but even the so-called organization of the church, sure. or what it deals with, how would, at least for you, I, I mean, I, without getting necessarily into calls to repentance and whatnot, because obviously that would be the route that you'd have to go. Right. But in terms of at least conceptualizing Mormonism yeah, and trying to put it on a comparative table with this type of backdrop, how do you do that? Yeah. So this actually might be an interesting, so the paper that I proposed uh, to present at Sunstone this summer, um, we'll see if they pick it up actually kind of does, does that work, but takes, but takes the comparison at an intrafaith level, um, I mean, within Mormonism, right? Um, and it's funny, it's a part of this paper actually stems from a section in the Birch article that talks about uh, eternal progression um, and what heaven actually looks like, right? So, so the Sunstone Conference is on heaven this summer. Um, and so I wrote a paper, I, I proposed a paper that looks at what I've kind of pointed to is three general thrusts of heaven and what it takes to get there. And, and one of the things that that paper is going to, is going to do is say that this is an instance. And there's other places where this happens as well. And Mormonism isn't the only place where this happens, but your, your approach to heaven and, and people's different approaches to heaven kind of create three distinct kinds of Mormonism within Mormonism, right? And it kind of the same way I feel about comparative work, right? How you compare says more about you than what you're comparing um, and how you compare is going to drive what you think about comparative work is going to drive the actual work of comparison, right? I think similarly too, for this paper, um, how you view heaven is going to dictate how you interact and view the people around you. So I like, I like two words in Brian's conclusion, um, candor and humility. Um, too often, I think in comparison, in comparative work and in dialogue, both of those things are lacking, both candor and, and humility, right? We don't, we don't really care to say what we want to say for a lot of different reasons. And then we're not, we tend to not be humble enough to kind of actually be listening, right? Or listening for listening's sake. 
and so I think in, in terms of like what it means for Mormonism on the ground in the kind of fractured way that it is now is that it, it, it doesn't have to be Catholics that you're comparing this way, right? You could, you could, you could compare and talk about your own neighbor in ways that you differentiate that you, that in, in the ways you, you, your practice of Mormonism is different, but it, it's going to be the can is the humility and the candor that, that need to be present for anything to happen. And I think that's vague enough to not call people to, to repentance. Right. But I think there's, there's something fruitful, even though Brian's explicitly comparing and contrasting Catholicism and Mormonism. Um, and in some ways it's probably to say just as much as, Hey, you're the person in your ward that looks at X differently than you probably talks about X in very similar ways than you do. And there can still be a fruitful conversation to be had if it's approached with candor and humility. It's mostly just the MO, it's the modus operandi instead of, instead of the subject itself. Sure. Yeah. I like that. Again, this, this goes back to Davidson, right? When we're, especially when we're talking about intrafaith stuff, the amount of shared background information that we have outweighs the differences in practice or what have you. And so if we just actually talk about what we feel different on, foregrounding all of that in how much we actually agree on, then it might be easier to be humble and candid um, because we're couching it in a level of shared agreement. So I guess to kind of bring that back to the example that I brought with Smoot, the League of Nations, it's real, it's, and so, you know, if I was a League of Nations supporter and I looked at Reed Smoot, who was adamantly against it, it's realizing that him as a Latter-day Saint and a devout one, obviously, is a serving as an apostle, um, and me trying to be a devout Latter-day Saint, we share similar values and worldviews in that regard. We just differ, I guess, in how we want to bring that about. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like in, in, hashing, in hashing out the ways you want to bring whatever about. Right, right, right. And obviously in, in, in the case of the League of Nations, it's, it's peace. It's world sure, peace. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's world peace. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, and, and, and you know what, and what I like about that type of, you know, humility and candor with that type of stuff too, is it puts, it puts a lot of the, the vitriol that come with, I guess, as I like to put it, identifying with abstracts or putting one's identity into abstracts. It allows somebody to kind of put those off to the side for a moment and just say, okay, is there any sort of similarity with what's going on here? So 
you know, with the league in the course in the league of nations, we're both trying to bring about world peace. Like Reed Smoot's trying to bring about world peace. I'm trying to bring about world peace. Of course, it's a very, very, you know, superhero like thing to try to bring about, but yeah. So the shortcoming to my approach to comparative work um, and discourse in this kind of way is that there is a, there is kind of, there is a, there is a level of buy-in that, that both people have to um, agree to. Yeah. For the discourse, for, for the conversation to even take place, the people having the conversation have to buy in to the kind of hermeneutics that go on with it. Um, and I think that, I think that takes kind of, that takes a special person um, or it, it might just take some coaxing. Um, but yeah, the, the shortcoming um, of the kind of the way I see comparative work and the way I see discourse able to actually do something is that is that it does take a certain level of buy-in and in which case if the person who thinks that reed smoot is an apostate doesn't care about anything that reed smoot has to say because he doesn't want the league of nations to happen um then that's probably just gonna like sit there right um so that that does become that does become kind of the the short the short end of the stick for how I like to view things is that it's always it's always it's always flirting with idealism. Well, and I guess in my case, like with the mod that kicked me off of Reddit, like the that individual will never ever. Well, maybe he maybe he will. Who knows? But. In the case of me getting banned from that subreddit, from him banning me from that subreddit, any sort of discussion, just kind of highlighting your point, like it was never going to happen because entertaining Catholic theology on a Latter-day Saint forum to him was unacceptable. Right. Yeah. Can't, can't happen. Right. I agree with you in that, that, that you know, that's a shortcoming. It's because <laughs> obviously... <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I'm sitting here complaining about this mod, <laughs> you know, I, I guess in a sense, I'm, I'm, I'm just as guilty as the mod, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, so it does, it does. Like, how, 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 dare the mod not, how dare know, the mod right? not agree with my comparative worldview? Right. Exactly. <laughs> so it does. It's one, it's one of those things. So my, my approach to comparison and comparative work and, and kind of like, what, what I see as my own kind of ethics of comparison of, of, of comparative work is that it's, 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 it's not very, I don't know how universalized it could be, but I don't, I don't know if that's a bad thing either. Well, as I was always taught, I mean, if there's one thing that I did, if there's one positive thing I learned from my mission president, which I'll admit not few <laughs> or not many, um, there's one positive thing I learned from him. There's a saying that he would always say, which is that if you're not striving for an ideal, you're not striving for anything. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Which I thought was, you know, and that's a thought, that's a saying that always sat with me because it's like, you know, because if we, if we, you know, it's like, you can agree to disagree. Um, but in the end, that's just, that's an impasse. Um, right. And impasses, 
you know, it's like, it's, it's like Dr. It's like Dr. Seuss's the Zacks. That's why I, I love that story so much. You have the, you know, the North going Zacks and the South going Zacks. And eventually they interface, they come head to head. Are you familiar with the story? You ever heard the Zacks? I think I have, but it's been a while. It, it really highlights what you're getting at here because with the because the South, because the South and North going Zacks finally bump into each other. And they each are arguing with one another. The North going Zach says, I, I only go North. I never deviate to the East. I never deviate to the West. I never go South. I, I don't go anywhere. I only go North. Right. But then the South going Zach says like, excuse me, you're in who's in whose way here. You're in my way <laughs> because I go South. I don't deviate. You need to get out of my way. And right. they sit there for the rest of eternity. And, and the, the story progresses and it says that they just sit there. And as they sit there, you see snows come, you know, the, the, the pictures progress with that the snows coming and going interstates being built around them. Like a tourist site is built there with like the Zacks and people taking pictures of them, just them sitting there, not budging. Oh, I love that. I have this. So kind of similarly, I have, um, I can't remember where it's stuck in my scriptures now, but I have a poem stuck in my scriptures that's called um, the cold within. And I don't remember the poem verbatim, but basically what's happening is, is four strangers wind up stranded in the wilderness and it's, it's cold and they need to make a fire and they each have a stick with which they could make a fire if they shared. And there's like a rich guy, a poor guy, a black guy and a racist. And they, they don't make a fire and they wind up dying and the, 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 the last, I do remember the last line of the poem. The last line of the poem is they didn't die from the cold without, they died from the cold within. And I think that's why to kind of like segue myself into the last piece that I wanted to talk about for this episode. Um, I think that's why it's Eugene England's um, call it becoming a world religion, blacks, the poor, all of us. Um, and, and he's, Gene's kind of grappling with the same kind of kinds of things, right? How do we make sense of competing and conflicting truth claims? Um, Gene's going to go further than, than I would go and ultimately couch it in, in kind of a Mormon worldview. But I think the, the, his approach to old, to couching it in the Mormon worldview is helpful, um, the beginning raises the questions of what, what are we to think of a God who, who, who gives this very unique kind of gospel message? The only one that'll allow you to make it back to him, to only a handful of his people. He spills it out. Um, and by his estimation, something like one hundredth of one percent have been Latter-day Saints, right? And he's writing this at a time where you've got people saying there's going to be something like 200 million Mormons by the middle of the century we inhabit now. And we're like 25 years out from that date and we ain't making it to no 200 million, right? Okay, probably. As I sit here now, if, if 15 million turns into 200 million in 30 years, we can we can come back to this. Aren't we? Are we close? To, I don't know. I, I can't mean, remember off way. the top of my head. But yeah. Either so way. so yeah. If that turns into two hundred million in the next 
28 years, then we can come back to this moment in time and say, you were wrong. How dare you doubt God and his purposes? Um, anyway, but so he raises though the question that I think is, that I think is apt here. Um, he says, with this in mind, as we have a very aggressive missionary outlook and very strong proselytizing urges, he says, well, it's our responsibility to them, meaning other people and ourselves, as we intrude upon them with the version of the gospel of Christ developed in our own Western American culture. And he's going to kind of, he spends the essay kind of grappling with that. And he brings it into like classism and racism in America. But I think the overarching question, which is how, how do we grapple with imposing ourselves on other people when we're such a crazy minority? Um, what, what kind of ethical implications does that kind of comparative work have, right? In that in President Hinckley's view, you have, you take, we're not asking you to give up any of your truth, bring what you have and we'll add to it. I don't think that's actually the case, right? Because we're not, we're not highlighting the, the Buddhist-ness that we see um, in our faith. We're not, we're not highlighting is something that the Bhagavad Gita might do in Mormon life, right? We still find those. So you convert to Mormonism and then you find those weird, which again has something to say about how, what, what our general urge of comparative work is. And so I like that question. Um, what is our responsibility to them as we impose ourselves and our own kind of Western American identity upon people who are different than us? Well, and it and, highlights, yeah. oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just going to like to wrap it all up and to kind of like tie a little bow on it. Um, I, I think what it calls our responsibility to them is right, what everybody, what the other three have been calling for as well is candor and humility, right? And that there's ways to have conversations across kind of across differences, religious, ideological, political, whatever. There are ways to have fruitful conversations across those kinds of lines that can be invigorating uncomfortable, productive, and, and whatever other adjective you want to put on it. But we as the comparers have to, have to put ourselves in the kind of place that doesn't wind up hoping to do kind of a kind of epistemological harm on, on the community or the person that we're comparing ourselves or our community to. And so as a broad, again, I've said it before, but I think it's a good place to, to end on the, in, 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 a broad, in the broadest way, the way we go about our comparative work um, is going to dictate more about what our comparison is going to say than what the comparison itself is going to say. And so by, by, by approaching comparative work with, with charity, like Donald, a la Davidson, and kind of humility and candor, a la Birch, and in this kind of like self-reflective way that Eugene England is talking about, 
I think there's, there's fruitful work that can be done both for comparison and of itself and for like comparative ethics that might come with it down the road. I like that, you know, and it kind of highlights a lot of what we were just discussing earlier with Birch's article. Like um, it's also hard to, it's hard to not only think about the superiority complex of trying to impose one's theology onto another, but it's also difficult to think about it when your in-house theology is still incredibly messy and still needs a lot of work. So, you know, it's kind of, you know, it highlights Christ's own message, I suppose, where it's like you clean the inner vessel before you take care of that outer vessel type thing. That, That was, that was, that was the thing about England's article that I particularly liked. And I guess in, in charity, humility, and candor, Christian, I, I thank you for being here. This has been a very good, fruitful conversation. I've, I've certainly learned a lot, and thank you. Oh, you're sure welcome. Thanks for having me. Absolutely.